The opinions expressed on questions you didn't ask are those of the individual participants and do not reflect those of their respective employers and institutions. Welcome back to Questions You Didn't Ask and the series I called out, but they didn't hear me with our guests, Dr. Marianne Farrow and Dr. Gifford Rainey as we explore the topic of healthcare diversity and inclusion in the UK and beyond. Let's get back into the conversation. And so one of the things that you hear as an American is that classism is more of an issue for non-white people in the UK than racism. Now, I have a feeling I know what your reaction is going to be, but can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, especially in light with what Marianne was sharing about how there are people of color that are in positions of power, right, have been in the UK for generations and have amassed some level of wealth, power, position, right? And and have ascribed to what I would, what it sounds like to me is a white supremacist mindset. Mm. So does that mean that classism is more of an issue in the UK than racism? Is racism an issue in the UK? <laughs> I, I think that particularly in health, and I've seen it come through over the last couple of years, by the way, all of these opinions are my own personal opinions. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I've seen it come through around, obviously, social deprivation being the biggest factor in relation to health inequalities and health equity, but completely missing the point that most people who are socially disadvantaged are Black. Mm. And, and I found that it's because it's, e it's an easier sell to talk about social disadvantage and what do we need to fix social disadvantage than it is to really tackle racism. Mm -hmm. And and I've seen it at the board. I've seen it at, at highest the highest levels of leadership. The hardest topic to talk about in the room is racism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's a deathly silence. Mm -hmm. But if I want to talk about social deprivation, yeah, loads of people will be happy to have that conversation. So I, wor I worry that it, be, you know, is it a factor? Of course it is, but it's still enormously interlinked with racism. Yes. So, you know, you, you can't take, you know, take one and try to fix that without looking at the other one. You know, we're just missing and not talking about this elephant in the room because it's mm -hmm. too hard to talk about. People feel too challenged Mm -hmm. to be open and have that honest conversation. So so that's that's what I see yeah. in relation to, to that topic. And in addition to that, I um, because I don't think you can, especially when it comes to race and class, I don't think you can separate them. It's highly intersectional and mm -hmm. must be treated as such. It's true to say that class plays out very differently in Britain than it does, say, in the States. Mm -hmm. When we talk about classism in the States, it's more tied to wealth, isn't it? It's tied mm -hmm. to how much money you have. Mm -hmm. Whereas classism in Britain is not necessarily tied to money. It's tied to how close you are to the monarchy or to aristocracy or mm -hmm. to classes. 
And that could be through blood, um, and it's often through blood, so, so thereby historical legacies. But it's also sometimes through property, through education as mm -hmm. well. So it's quite possible to, to be relatively poor and still be an aristocratic in Britain and still mm. where you speak and the, the private education you, you would have had to be treated differently than, say, somebody who's even got money but, you know, come from, say, the working or middle classes. Mm -hmm. um, so, and this is why it's complex and this is why blackness is tied almost inextricably to the lower classes mm. so it's quite possible you know i've been a i've i've met you've mentioned in the introduction that i've been a a, a lecturer or a professor as, as the americans would say higher education in university for many many years mm -hmm. um and but when i'm walking down the street or when i'm driving in the car i'm driving as black i'm walking as black and and mm -hmm the white police officer or person behind the till in a shop is, doesn't necessarily buy into the fact that I'm a professor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. they, they see this black guy with a hoodie on or whatever the case might be. And immediately I'm treated as part of that lower class. So there is this classism that's very much, yeah. that very much stratifies the way we see society. Mm -hmm. Also, yeah. it's possible to, because of education, to, to be privy to certain access points, let's say in the National Health Service or let's say in the care service that you need. So you might be wiser and might need and therefore might have some inside knowledge. It's public knowledge, but inside knowledge mm -hmm. on on where to go and and how to be treated and you might be in a better postcode by postcode we mean zip code in america mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because some healthcare is attached to zip codes or postcodes you might benefit better more from from that so for example i used to live in a village in berkshire mm -hmm. and if i were to call my local gp that is my local district doctor that person, I would get an appointment immediately that morning. Mm -hmm. Moved to London, and I call for the same problem, for the same um, complaint, and the, I will have to wait for two weeks before I'm seen. Mm -hmm. So you, so it's true that your class can, to some degree, determine mm -hmm. the type of access you have. But once you're in the system. If you get through the uh, get through the door, you because of the way you look, you mm -hmm. that you're a person of color, and unashamedly so, you are subject to the same kind of um, discrimination that others yeah. are subjected to. I think what's really interesting about class. So I I lived in Liverpool for ten years. So during my medical training, is understanding the generational context for class in that mm. although I was at university with a number of people who originally from the north and they would they still classified themselves as working class even after having a degree even yes. after a master's and yes. a PhD yes. if you ask them their class they would say they're working class I would too because that's their, that's <laughs> their family 
but you're not you know you, you i know you, i know that's your education you, you've now yeah. um, moved into a, a different realm of privilege but it's baked in the system mm -hmm. as to where you see you fit whereas yeah. i think in america it's much more mobile you can work your way out of whatever class you might happen to be born into but yes. in england it, it kind of what you're born into is what you stay into until you die. Like it's, mm -hmm. you know, and as Gifford said, it's not necessarily linked with wealth at all. I know a number of aristocratic people who are actually quite poor. Um, yes. mm -hmm. But, but what, what they do have, and, and I think this is becoming more important than money mm -hmm. and network. They have, they're well connected mm -hmm. Absolutely. and they have very impressive networks because of, the types of families that they mix with mm -hmm. or people that they mix with. And, you know, I think one of the really, there's a, there's an amazing group of doctors who've come together to form a, an organization called Melanin Medics. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things that I love that they're doing is trying to shift the balance so, you know, one of the biggest things for black people who go into medical school is you don't have any networks, no. generally. You no. don't, you're not connected. No. And there are a lot of unwritten rules mm -hmm. that you won't know about. And so when you apply for what you think is, you know, surgical training, thinking it's fair and an open mm -hmm. process, you probably mm. won't get it. No. You know, because the reality is, there's a whole lot of history and process that sits behind that actually you wouldn't know about and you're not mm -hmm. privileged enough to understand. So I love this organization because they really, they, they have taken all of those unwritten rules and they mm -hmm. set up mentors and the connectors to ensure that it becomes this kind of level playing field that mm -hmm. we really want to see because actually, you know, if I live in London, and we've just said 46% of people in London are were not born in the UK. Mm -hmm. I kind of want to see a surgeon that looks like me. Mm. But if we keep making this, you know, the process of getting into some of these specialties so difficult for people mm -hmm. of colour, then we will never see that equitable balance. You know, we'll never see that representation that we need to be seeing. So... You know, I think some of these organisations are so important when we're really looking for that kind of institutional change that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. yes. um, and as you said, like breaking down those barriers and, and really, you know, confronting some of those practices that we've got in place. That I think what's happened is we've, we've just had a certain group sitting in the top of leadership in medicine mm -hmm. They all look the same. They all sound the same. They're all from similar backgrounds. And they, I just don't think that, you know, majority of them even realise what the problem is. No. I think some of them don't even think there is a problem. No. Exactly. So, you know, that that's what we're, we're confronting and that's what we really need to work on, on shifting and changing. Yeah. It's it, again, it's it's more same game, different name. Right. That's what I grew up hearing from my parents about how um, racism and the systems of racism operate and are proliferated throughout the world. Right. And so a lot of what you're saying resonates with me um, as I think about, you know, yes, there is social mobility in the U.S. That is true. But it's not as readily available as, 
you know, media would make it seem, right? And then, you know, in my own circle, you know, I see people who are from what we would consider poor, lower, shoot, I can't, I'm, I grew up poor, you know what I mean? But there is, you know, so over time and with education and different things like that, you know, yes, we've obtained certain degrees or titles or things of that sort. But the social cultural connection that we have, and especially the familial connection that we have, doesn't change, right? The, the you know, in the United States, you might hear people talking, Black people talking about getting invited to the cookout, right? So the cookout is like this metaphor of where Black people feel at home, where we feel ourselves, where our culture um, is allowed to run free, especially through food, of course, and um, and drink and and laughter and all that. And that's a sacred space, right? Yeah. It is a sacred space. And so when we think about, you know, social mobility, you know, when you come to the quote unquote cookout, you're going to have people with all types of backgrounds, right? Yeah. Because what, what centers us is our Black culture, right? Is our shared family connection and within the same family connection or um, even neighborhood, you can have everything from lawyers and doctors to your local drug dealer and gang members. And, mm. you know, all those things can be encompassed within the same family structure. And mm. because we understand that, as you mentioned, when you're walking down the street, when you're going to the doctor, when you're um, when you're sitting in your office, people see your back blackness first, mm. right? We all have experiences. I'm sure that we could share in regard to sitting in your office with your degrees behind you on purpose, right? Because mm -hmm. you need people to understand that you've earned the right to be there and you are equipped and ready. But when mm -hmm. they come in, they don't see the name on the degree they assume that must be somebody else's office and somebody else's degree and you're sitting there by mistake right mm. so so i definitely can can relate to what you're talking about and i think that this is just so much more illuminating to help black people across the globe and our allies understand how similar our experiences are that we're not making this up that we're mm. not just saying stuff about systems of oppression and institutionalized racism because we want to hear ourselves speak. You yes. know, no, these are real things that are happening. And and we understand them intimately because we have to in order to survive and progress and be able to have family and, and be able to live in the in this country and in this world. Yes. So you you guys brought up some very interesting things about how structural and institutionalized racism shows up in the UK. Are there any other things that you want to share about what it's like to live in black skin and and walk the streets and live your life as a black person? What does that look like and what does it feel like the institutionalized racism? Is it any different? So I'm involved in a number of projects where where institutionalized racism has been charged and leveled at that particular institution of my of my study or intervention. So for example, the Metropolitan Police of London, which is the biggest police force in Britain, and 
and therefore the most powerful. They have recently been charged with institutional racism and sexism. Mm. And um, a, a very damning report by Baroness Casey. Notice the title Baroness, <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, the elitism in Britain. That actually detailed a number of misdemeanors and nefarious acts, um, uh, custom and practices of the institution. And what is interesting in my involvement is that the the person who is actually in charge of the police force there in Britain has in in London, sorry, has refused to use the word institutionalized racism or institutional racism. Mm-hmm. And he's refused to do that um, for political reasons. So we have a government at the moment that is led by the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party is really the political of the establishment. Mm. They are the ones who represent the establishment. So when we talk Mm -hmm. about classism and so on, they are the ones that represent that. Mm -hmm. And maybe later on we'll talk about the the National Health Service, which Mm which is our health service here in Britain. They are not intuitively for that system they are mm-hmm. they are intuitively against the system they would prefer privatization and so on and so forth mm-hmm. well they are refusing to acknowledge the reality of institutional racism or institutional sexism they are refusing mm-hmm. to recognize this and so it's really an uphill struggle and battle to have to deal with systemic racism in these spaces because of politi- the politicization of, of racism mm. and because of the politricking, you know, it's politics really, mm-hmm. um, that undermines the efforts that we're trying to make in, in, in bringing about an equal playing field. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really, really difficult. So what, what, because they set the tone, the government is setting the tone mm. um, for the discourse, we're finding that regimes in the health services and the, in the health service rather, in the housing service, in the judiciary regimes, they are digging in their heels. Mm. And uh, because it's almost like the government is giving them permission to, to push back against mm. progress we're trying to make and i've had the i'm working presently with a particular healthcare service trying to work with their board in efforts to recognize some of the things that we are talking about and you can see that those who are in t- instinctively suspicious of any kind of progressive work they are as it were supported and backed up by the tone of the rhetoric that we are are witnessing in the in in the government i don't know if um, marianne has noticed something similar i'm doing some work um, this week with um, some head teachers as well and and thankfully because of because it's more of an academic context, I'm able to show the studies and 
and persuade people of of what is institutional racism but it's not it's not is it's not straightforward mm-hmm. 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 yeah and i think i think for me that kind of the institution is is the problem and and the biggest problem is the leadership um and and that's what i'm seeing and it's because these institutions have been developed within you know let's just be honest for white men yes Mm -hmm. that's those institutions so women i mean that's my biggest bugbear have Mm. been retrofitted into a system that doesn't really work for us so then Mm -hmm. you add on the racism element. So if you are a, a woman of colour, it mm-hmm. doubly doesn't work for you. And then if you add in a disability, oh, good Lord, I don't know right. how you'd even try, you know. So it's, it's yes, you know, these are the, this is the reality of the institution we're talking about, very old institutions that will take a lot, you know, they took a long time to build and will take a long time to unpick as well. And, and not everyone is prepared to do the hard work. No. And and we, you know, we don't make it easy for ourselves because we want results now. Ah. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll fund something for 12 months <laughs> when actually, you know, if we want, you know, an organisation, a very large organisation to become anti-racist, it needs 10 years. 10 years At minimum. of significant funding. And then you might get there. You might get some results and some impact at the end of it. But we're not. We're, you know, we're reactionist. We, yeah. When we want it now, we're kind of in this, with the expectations are just not achievable. Yeah. And so it becomes really problematic for someone like me who's trying to move, you know, I, I am in leadership and I'm continually trying to move up to make the changes happen. I've seen I've talked to Gifford before about, that breaking the glass ceiling, but it's not once, it's every time. And it's right. It's it's quite exhausting, actually. If you're yes. always the first, if you're mm. always the first, and there's there's no one and no one else in the room that looks like you every no. single time, mm-hmm. it's you know, it, it you get burnt out very quickly. And you know, you listed off my achievements at the beginning. Yes. Why do I need them all? <laughs> there you, you go. Know, why? I, I and can I just say real quick but, that when with her her credentials, like she has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, mm. seven credentials behind her name. Mm. And I see this a yeah. lot with with black people and and with black women in particular. And I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just wanted to make sure that our audience understood what you were talking about. So go right ahead. Yeah, and I missed some off as well. I didn't add some. I'm sure. It was a bit much. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I say this frequently. I have to be 10 times better. Mm. 10 times, not wow. two or three times better. 10 wow. times better than an older white man in the same yeah. position. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, it is exhausting. And, you know, you have to, you have to be extremely resilient. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, adaptable mm-hmm. uh, and you know have a really positive mindset to kind of cope with all of the various different things you'll come across because for me actually some of the biggest biases I've experienced are probably relating to sexism yes. mm. so being a, being a younger female yes. in what is a very much older male world 
Um, That's probably been the most confronting thing. So, you know, lots of different challenges kind of based on my intersectionality. And I was just going to quickly say around colour, because I think it's important to bring this up. Yes, talk about colour. Yeah, I'm mixed race. And so I get quite a number of people who are black say to me that, what would I know about racism? Mm. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't even go into the amount of racism I've experienced because it, it, at, at one point it was every day. Like yes. working clinically, right. yes. it was every day. Every day a patient would say to me, I don't want you as my doctor. I want an English doctor. Yes. Um, I, I don't want to see a black person. I yes. want a white doctor. So, yes. you know, and that would be frequent. You become so desensitized. Mm-hmm. that it, you just have to laugh and so I'd just laugh it off I'd laugh it off but I find it incredulous when I have black people say to me what you know what would you know about racism and mm. I guess what I say to them back is that the institutions and people who are racist don't see a difference in color they just no. see that you're not white That's right. mm-hmm. so you get exactly the same hit yeah. to you Yes. Mm-hmm. regardless of the shade of colour that you might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and and certainly, you know, s- some of the things that people have openly said about me, I, mm-hmm. I, I cannot repeat. No. Um, mm-hmm. I have, you know, I have made complaints. I have been through HR processes that took 12 months and been gaslighted at the end and told wow. that, you know, you're just too sensitive Wow. And, you know, the person, you know, told you to go back to the jungle because it was a joke. Wow. Um, yeah. And, you know, and and these are people, these are your colleagues. These are people yeah. you work right. with. Yeah. And they're protected by these institutions. And then, mm-hmm. the you know, what that says outside is that it's okay to behave like that. Mm-hmm. It's okay to say that to people. And and it becomes accepted practice. So, you know, it, it's a long road. I, you know, that's why I spend a lot of my free time talking about this. I spend a lot of time mm-hmm. mentoring um, people coming through because I think, you know, in some ways, knowledge is power. If if you yeah. if mm-hmm. you can navigate what is a really challenging environment, yeah. And, and if I can help you with that, then you know. I'll do my best because what what I want to see is more people in the room yeah. that look like me. I, I do not want to be the only one here. Yeah, and can I can I um, just add? Well, first of all, just applaud you, Marianne, for your yes. for your stickability, for your resilience. That's amazing, really, and I'm touched by what you've shared. Even though um, it resonates very much with my own experience, I'm nevertheless touched by mm-hmm. that. And I just want to add that you can't go it alone. So mm-hmm. one of the mistakes, and I guess that towards the end you're going to ask this kind of question, but since it's been raised here, I just mention, yes, often we are the first, and it is, it is really... Um, crazy you know there are so many firsts still going on 
with uh, with just normal achievements. We're not talking about mm-hmm. Mac, just normal achievements. Mm-hmm. And um, you can't go it alone. You you know we do depend or do need the support network that we do have. And we have to pay tribute to the networks that we have built so that so that they energize us or they give us the little mm-hmm. work that we need in order to just make that that other step. And uh, part of the mistake, I think that on both sides of the race, racialized issues, is that we think we can do it alone. I think it's important to say it, the way intersectionality works here in my observation is we find that black women compared to black men get into, because they are um, more highly educated. So we have Mm -hmm. more educated black women than we do black men, at least at entry level. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, uh, they tend to get through the doors a lot earlier than the black counterparts, black men. What we find, however, is that there are ceilings because of gender, of being a female. There are ceilings placed on how high that person can go, that woman can go once they get through to the system. And so what we find is that although the black men are slower to get through, they tend to punch through that ceiling earlier or or, or especially leadership, leadership ceiling earlier mm-hmm. than their white women i'm just uh, this this is what the research tends to tend to show and hence and of course because of um motherhood and and traditional roles attached to certain genders we find that the system doesn't always smile and work favorably for for black women especially especially in terms of the ascendancy mm-hmm. uh, in careers that that they are um, expected to have like everybody else so I thought I'll just thought I'd interject with that point yeah yeah and I think that's that's so true I mean I've seen it in my career where probably a well-intentioned male superior Mm-hmm. has decided that they're not even going to offer me an opportunity because mm-hmm. I have children at home and yeah. shouldn't you be at home looking after them? Yes. Mm. But didn't ask me if, no. you know, what my situation is. You know, at the time I was very lucky and you know, I, I have a partner. Mm. Uh, my husband's fantastic. You know, no question of what arrangements I might put in place to give me, a, you know, so that I have a choice mm. to and extend my skills and have this growth opportunity it's just this you know very paternalistic approach of what you're the mother you must be at home you know and I I did I had to say back to him well would you be saying that to a man would you Mm -hmm. be saying that to a male you know a a male who was sitting in this seat Mm. and and you know just shine the mirror back up at that individual as to some of the biases that they're bringing (laughs) into what really was just about professional Mm -hmm. development and growth opportunities so I think it's important that when when we see it we say something Um, and and that's something that I'm you know trying to put into place all the time and I think that I'm you know I'm in a privileged position where I have enough experience under my belt that I 
I'm not afraid to do that. Mm. But I certainly understand that for many, particularly women of colour, mm. there, there is no power in the workplace. And no. you would, you know, your job might be on the line if mm-hmm. you send something back yeah. again. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's really challenging to, you know, really live your values in some of the work environments that, that people um, have to participate in. Thank you for listening to the new series of Questions You Didn't Ask. Join me, your host, Naisha Frey, and my guests, Dr. Marianne Farrow and Dr. Gifford Rainey, next week as our conversation on global diversity and inclusion in healthcare continues.